and welcome to the T-Mobile Sprint update task lessons from Europe conference call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Jonathan Chapman. Please go ahead, sir. Good morning. Thanks for all, all of you for joining us today. We hosted a string of calls over the last six months focused on the T-Mobile Sprint deal. Almost all of those calls have focused on the regulatory process and the odds of approval. The focus of today's call is going to be a little different. The terms of a potential deal have been steadily coming out into focus through press reports over the course of the last three weeks, and we want to focus this call on the implications of these merger conditions on the wireless carriers if this deal ends up being approved. This, more than anything else, should actually drive the antitrust analysis. We're in a unique position to analyze the implications of merger conditions on market participants because we've seen seven four to three deals in Europe, many with similar conditions to those being considered here. And we've got the best European telecom research team on the street, and they've done great work looking at the impact of merger conditions on the various deals that we've seen in Europe so far. We're going to use the lessons from Europe to establish a framework for the impact to, US, to, to the carriers in the U.S. I'm joined on the call today by James Ratzer, who heads up our European coverage team, and Andrew Entwistle, who focuses on European regulation in the telecom industry, among a host of other things. They're going to set the stage with the lessons from Europe. I'll follow up with thoughts on the implications um, for, those, for the carriers in the U.S., and then we're also joined by Blair Levin, who's been the star of all the calls we've done so far on this, uh, on this deal. Blair's going to give thoughts on what the lessons from Europe could mean for uh, the case that the state AGs appear determined to bring um, and the way their case might be reviewed by the courts. We'll leave time for questions at the end. As always, if you'd rather not ask a question on an open line, please email questions to Ethan at ethan.lacy at newstreetresearch.com. You should also all have a slide deck in front of you. If you haven't received the slides for any reason, um, please ping Ethan and we'll get them out to you as quickly as possible. Um, so starting on slide two, the key elements of the deal that have been discussed in the press so far appear to be one, a divestiture of prepaid subscribers. The FCC required a divestiture of Boost, um, which we think co constitutes about 7 million subs. There's been talk that it might need to be greater than just Boost, perhaps as much as 12 million subs. Two, an MBNO to support the divested subscribers, at least until DISH can build out a network. Two weeks ago, details emerged of a possible condition whereby the merging companies would reserve 12% of their total capacity for the MVNO. Um, there was, there's been a discussion in the press about whether that 12% would be enough. That seems to be one of the contentious points in the negotiations. Point three, a divestiture of spectrum, perhaps as much as 40 megahertz. We've seen discussions of a sale of 800 megahertz which doesn't make a lot of sense to us since there's only about 14 megahertz of it and it's fully utilized, will likely remain so for years. There's been a discussion of 2.5 gigahertz being divested, which makes a lot more sense to us since this is prime 5G spectrum that we would, want, that we would imagine anyone buying spectrum would want, and Sprint has a surplus. Uh, point number four, there's been talk of DT wanting to limit DISH's ability to sell themselves or more than 5% of themselves to a strategic investor. Um, this appears to be another sticking point in the deal discussions that may be sort of slowing the process down. 
The conditions being discussed are unusual for the U.S. in that the merging parties aren't being required to simply divest assets. They're being required to divest assets to a specific recipient. This undoubtedly complicates the negotiations because the specific recipient has a good deal of leverage in the negotiations. The fact that that specific recipient happens to be DISH, no doubt complicates the negotiations further. The conditions are starting to look curiously similar to the conditions we saw in Germany. In fact, there have been a, a few four to three mergers in Europe which have included conditions that are similar to the conditions being discussed here. And with that in mind, we have James and Andrew to talk through the implications of merger conditions in Europe on market pricing in those markets as well as on the fortunes of the various market participants. Um, James? Great. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Um, so what I plan to do over the next few minutes is to run through some of the case studies that we've seen in Europe of similar situations to what could transpire in the U.S. and see what lessons we can learn from them. Uh, so the deal that is being discussed is a four to three uh, consolidation, and this is a term which is used a lot. Um, arguably, we think too much. And the first question we'd really like to pose here is to think about what the term four to three actually means, um, as we believe that this has helped to frame the way that regulators can think about these deals too. So firstly, does it mean four retail players becoming three retail players? Well, no. Um, as we show in slide four, what we actually see is that in most European markets, and indeed the US as well, already start with more than four retail brands, um, as there are a multitude of MVNOs already present in the market, making the re retail telecoms market uh, a crowded one to start with. We'll come back to this point in more detail, as I think it's often overlooked, and getting the right retail element can be the most critical part for determining success uh, of these new entrants. So does it therefore mean four networks becoming three networks? Well, not really either, as most networks already have a great deal of embedded network sharing. We believe that the term four to three consolidation really means four legal owners of spectrum becoming three legal owners of spectrum. And hence, when regulators have looked at trying to mitigate the potential negative competitive effects from the concentration of spectrum, they've tried to open up further access to spectrum, either through a regulated wholesale MVNO or through the forced sale of spectrum or both. And it's against this backdrop that will largely focus on what has been happening in Germany, as this would seem to have the closest parallel with the structure that is currently being discussed in the U.S., i.e. an MVNO with a fixed capacity element uh, to be resold with Spectrum as an option as well. And in Germany, we also now benefit from a reasonable time frame to assess the post-deal outcome um, as this deal was approved five years ago. Uh, we can also draw reference to some of the more recent four to three deals we've seen in Italy. Um, there have also been some smaller deals in Ireland and Austria, and most recently um, a four to three merger in the Netherlands between T-Mobile and Tele2. But firstly, let's go back to the, the retail points. I think this is often overlooked. I think as analysts, 
we can often be guilty of spending hours kind of playing around with our spreadsheets to see if business models might technically work and whether they could theoretically be NPV positive. But at the end of the day, the, pre the proposition has to resonate with the end consumer as well and to have a successful brand. And in the slide six, what we show is that the new MNO entrants in Europe have actually found life pretty tough and it can be hard work to be a successful new entrant. So existing operators already benefit from customer trust, historically low levels of churn in the telecoms industry. And furthermore, in Europe, telecoms is not necessarily a service where customers think of themselves as being ripped off with consumer spend representing only 1% to 2% of disposable income. Now, the only really successful new entrant we've seen so far in Europe has been Iliad in France. But critically, they already started with a successful fixed-line business with 21% retail market share at the time of their mobile launch, a well-admired retail brand as well. They also were able to launch uh, with the benefit of regulatory support for cheap spectrum and mandated 3G roaming access. Remember, this Iliad was created not as part of a four-to-three deal, but rather the French regulator at the time just wanted to stimulate more competition. But as we show in slide five, they also launched when return on capital in France was 20%. Hence, arguably, this was also a very different environment to some of the more recent launches when returns now are closer to 10, because at that time there was much larger scope for them to undercut on price and still be profitable. And say, equally importantly, they had that strong starting position in fixed line. Just as an aside to emphasize the retail element, um, it's worth noting that having that regulatory support isn't necessarily a guarantee for success. Because in Ireland, one of the smaller deals where there was a similar structure in place to Germany with fixed capacity MVNOs, in that market offered to two operators, one of those operators, ID Mobile, actually went bankrupt in 2018 um, as they'd failed to gain sufficient customer market share. And the other operator, Virgin Mobile, actually only managed to gain 1% uh, market share over this time. Now, so having that um, successful retail brand and awareness, we think is absolutely critical. And I think it's certainly a consideration to bear in mind um, with the potential success for any future dish offering. Now, looking at Germany more specifically, let's go through the key terms of the merger remedy from 2014. So initially, this was a 15-year MVNO agreement uh, with Drillish, uh, and Drillish was picked by Telefonica Deutschland uh, and then approved by the EC. That allowed them, over the first five years, phased access up to 20% of the usage on TEF Deutschland's network with fixed payments being made to Telefonica Deutschland and Drillish had the option, if they wished, to increase that capacity up towards 30%. In addition to this, and signaling a regulatory wish for a facilities-based competitor to emerge over time, the offer was also made for a new MNO to build up their own network with a dedicated lease to 40 megahertz of spectrum. 
20 megahertz at 2.1 gigahertz, 20 megahertz at 2.6 gigahertz. However, so far, nobody has actually yet taken up that option. So Drillish entered the market um, as a pure MVNO. And if we look at this on slide seven, if we look at what they did initially on pricing, they entered the market with some pretty aggressive discounts versus the existing peers. Now, these kind of fluctuated around uh, over time, but they started off with discounts between 50% and two-thirds uh, compared to the existing operators. And they still compete today with cheaper pricing, albeit that discount has now narrowed compared with where they were when they initially launched. Now, to put this into context, we actually think Drillish, with their pricing, is arguably being a rational competitor. Uh, although the exact terms of the deal have never been made public, we think they entered the market paying about three euros per gigabyte for data, and that's fallen to around two euros today. Um, so their retail pricing has always been above their cost of service, uh, so that we think they're able to make a positive gross margin per subscriber. Now, even with those discounts, if we then say what was the impact on overall service revenues in Germany since the merger in mid-2014, this is on slide eight, the key takeaway here is that it actually hasn't been that disastrous for the overall market. And I'm going to repeat that point. The overall impact on the German market to date, I think, has been fairly limited uh, from this uh, remedy package. And this is despite Drillish's offers coming at such aggressive discounts to the headline offers of DT and Vodafone. Now, looking at the chart on slide eight, yes, it's fair to say that immediately after the deal, the German mobile market did stop outperforming the rest of Europe. But this has since reversed. Uh, so we think the overall impact um, has been modest to date, um, albeit it's fair to say we'll never quite know the, uh, the counterfactual. Um, if we look at the market share breakdown in a bit more detail uh, on the next slide, uh, what we can actually see is that Drillish's market share gains haven't been that significant, again, highlighting that price discounting alone is not enough to be successful. Brand presence, network quality, customer service do count for a lot. Now, together with the impact from United as well, the main market share loser from this has actually been Telefonica Deutschland. So the launch of a new value player in the market has actually seen that value player, i.e. Drillish, take share from the other low-end player. And the impact on Vodafone and DT has been far more limited. In fact, Deutsche Telekom has actually gained mobile service revenue market share since the merger. And in the last year or so, we've actually seen United's mobile market share being relatively stable despite still having cheaper offers and they have faced some additional competition from the larger MNOs launching and pushing more aggressively their own second brand. So going back to that retail message we were discussing earlier, um, we do believe Drillish's low initial market share gain could be linked to their poor pre-merger brand image and arguably why Telefonica Deutschland back in 2014 was quite happy to give them the merger remedy. 
So for O2D, not only has this been loss been exacerbated by higher churn in the value segment of the market, the other point to flag is that O2D also has some major issues successfully integrating their respective networks post-merger from E-plus um, and O2. Um, so successful network integration isn't a done deal here, and that's something Wind Hutchison also experienced in Italy. Uh, and this led to poor NPS scores, uh, which held back O2 Deutschland's own retail market share. Now, coming on to the kind of second stage here, because arguably the more significant development from the remedy outcome, um, which has taken five years to get to and might well be accelerated in the U.S. due to dishes existing ownership of Spectrum uh, has been the relish by the larger MVNO United Internet, and now United Internet's move to accelerate towards being a fuller MNO uh, with the recent purchase a couple of months ago of both 2.1 gigahertz Spectrum and 3.5 gigahertz Spectrum. Uh, and technically, United Internet can still take up that initial merger remedy uh, I was talking about earlier of getting access to a further 40 megahertz of spectrum, and it has until December to decide if it wishes to exercise the option. Now, we think United is doing this for a number of reasons. Firstly, and most importantly, we actually think this move should be NPV positive, uh, although I think this is a slightly contentious statement at this time, and the market share price would say some people disagree with us here. We believe they now have enough scale to make the cost of buying the spectrum and the cost of running tower leases have a lower NPV than the ongoing cost of their MVNO agreement. And importantly, they're a large enough company that they have the financial firepower to consider these higher upfront costs which Drillish back in 2014 did not have the financial clout uh, to do on its own. Uh, there's a slide in the deck, slide 10, which runs through the maths on that if anyone wants to kind of revisit it in the Q&A section. Secondly, also because the regulated MVNO agreement expires anyway in 2029. Now, I know that is still 10 years away, um, but I think, don't think United wanted to be exposed to event risk around that time um, as the risk is that the MVNO might not be renewed on commercial terms. So I think scale is critical, though, if you are going to make that switch to being an MNO as you need to cover the fixed costs. And we now believe United in Germany does have the necessary scale to make this work. Now, what might be the impact for the existing MNOs if United is successful is in moving from being an MVNO to a fully-fledged MNO? So for TEF Deutschland, the risk is potentially extremely severe, um, and we show this on slide 11. And this is the stock at the moment where investors in Europe seem to be most nervous. This isn't actually because of the additional competitive threat from United, but actually because TEF Deutschland over the last five years has now become so reliant on those wholesale revenues they receive, which could make up to 60% of their longer-term operating free cash flow. For Vodafone and Deutsche Telekom, we believe the market view 
and our view is that the transition by United from MVNO to MNO should be more muted. Um, firstly, there hasn't been a huge impact on their businesses we've seen over the past five years, but also if United wish for the migration to be profitable, we actually think there is limited margin for them to play with on pricing if they want this transition to be NPV positive uh, for them. But it's fair to say that does still remain a longer-term potential risk uh, for, the, for the German market. Just to move quickly on to Italy, uh, I think it's interesting here to discuss the issue of having that necessary scale. Um, but unlike in Germany, Iliad did not have a fixed capacity deal, but a variable capacity deal. Um, and they were forced, as part of the initial remedy, to buy spectrum and tower sites from wind. And as a result of that, we think Iliad has been under pressure to try to gain scale in Italy as quickly as possible. But going back to the retail point, the challenge in Italy was that they had no existing brand presence in this market at all. As we show on the next slide, this is now slide 12, um, their initial move into the market was highly disruptive in terms of pricing, and we actually believe they were pricing below cost initially. Um, that was their wholesale pricing, despite it being lower, at only, we believe around 75 cents per gigabyte. What I think Iliad miscalculated was the speed with which the other players in Italy started to match their pricing. Um, I think the other carriers wanted to limit Iliad's progress to gain scale, and I think they were worried that Italy has a very unique phenomenon of being a high prepay market with high churn, um, and the other operators wanted to be quick to respond. So, and so far, Iliad have only been in the market in Italy for about a year, um, but their initial market share gains have faded, so their pricing proposition hasn't proved differentiated enough, and they have faced complaints of network quality given their roaming on the weaker Wind Hutchison network. And it's interesting to note that actually since launch, Iliad has increased pricing twice, um, and they now face, we think, a bit of a catch-22 situation. Cut price again, and try to gain scale, but if ARPU's in Italy for them remain structurally low, it will be far harder in the longer term to cover fixed costs or raise price, generate more near-term cash flow, but then they might not get to the hoped-for customer market share that they need to cover the fixed cost of running a network with spectrum and tower assets. And similar to the case in Germany, as we show on slide uh, 13 and 14, uh, the market share gains from Iliad have come at a real cost to wind, i.e. the other lower price carrier within the market. Um, as I said, though, Tim and Vodafone have had more pressure, though, on repricing their back book due to the uniquely prepay nature of the market. So overall, I think it is hard to draw a single conclusion um, when looking across the European examples as each market does have different characteristics and the devil is always going to be in the detail on the exact terms of the wholesale terms that are offered. But as some generic conclusions, 
we would say that firstly, getting the retail strategy right and the brand strategy is just as important as having the spreadsheet saying that the business model is NPV positive. Secondly, moving from an MVNO to an MNO does require a necessary degree of retail scale to allow for switching to the fixed costs. And thirdly, integrating the network and maintaining the quality has been harder than either O2D or Wind-Hutchison expected. However, in Germany, say, which is likely to be the closest parallel to the U.S., the capacity offered was 20% uh, of Telefonica Deutschland's network usage, and still the overall impact on industry service revenues five years on has been relatively muted. What's clearly happened as well, though, is that the four to three deals, which initially had been hoped for as a real source of market repair and revenue growth, have failed to deliver that initial hope that people had five years ago. Um, and with that, I will uh, hand back to Jonathan. Thanks, James. So moving on to the lessons from, Euro from Europe for pricing and the fortunes of tariffs in the U.S., starting on slide 16. The experience in Europe suggests that the impact of a new entrant depends almost entirely on where they price. Um, in Germany, where United Internet had priced at a, more, at a more modest discount to the market, their impact has been relatively benign to the market overall. It sucked for O2D, but the pricing levels in the overall market haven't been that materially damaged. In Italy and, and indeed in France, where Iliad priced aggressively, their impact on the overall market was much more severe. We don't know where DISH is going to price. It depends on, well, three things. One, What's their cost? Two, how quickly they want to take share? And three, the magnitude of losses they can absorb in the early days as they, as they get to cash flow break even. We have a good sense of number one. Um, we, and I'm going to walk through that in a second. Number two and number three are, are largely unknown. In Germany, United Internet had no assets at the start, and so they were entirely reliant on the MVNO. This limits their ability to price aggressively. In Italy, um, and also in France, Iliad started off with an MVNO, but they had a clear path to owner's economics from the start. The cost of capacity under the MVNO didn't drive their pricing decisions. Their view of where future owners' economics would end up um, were, the, were the driver of, of where they set pricing. And ultimately, that's what, what from our perspective, um, had the biggest impact on what happened to pricing dynamics in the market generally. So DISH will be compelled to build a network from the start. We think that's going to be a critical piece of the deal if it goes through. Um, their view of where economics land once they own a network will be far more relevant to how they price than the terms of the MVNO. So what do we know about the future of DISH's economics? So if you flip to slide 17, um, DISH has the same amount of spectrum as Verizon and T-Mobile. They've got two advantages, though. Number one, their spectrum could be close to 50% more productive because it's all going to be deployed with 5G, while Verizon and T-Mobile spectrum is deployed with, believe it or not, 2G and 3G and 4G. 5G offers much more throughput 
per unit of, of spectrum than all of the earlier standards. It's much more spectrally efficient. Number two, their network cache cost could be less than half of Verizon and T-Mobile, largely for the same reason. Verizon and T-Mobile are supporting four networks. They've got a 2G network, a discrete 3G network, a discrete 4G network, with equipment from a barrel full of vendors, some of which is 15 years old. Dish would have a single network built with brand new state-of-the-art gear. In addition, um, Dish's network will be virtualized. This will allow them to concentrate all of the intelligence in the network in a handful of data centers rather than replicated across uh, 70 or 80,000 towers. And this saves on equipment, it saves on labor, it saves on leasing, it saves on power. It's a much more efficient way to deploy a network. And so that drives down their cost as well. When we take these two benefits together, Dish's cost per gigabyte is going to be significantly below Verizon and T-Mobile's. Um, Dish could price at the same level as Verizon and T-Mobile and make a 75% gross margin. At, at that pricing level, um, Verizon would generate zero gross profit and they would generate a massive EBITDA and free cash flow loss because remember, they've got another 20 cents per gigabyte of SG&A cost to support in the model. So Dish has, has opportunity. They can price to disrupt. We suspect they'll want to take, make use of their cost advantage to take share quickly. Um, we suspect they'll find the capital to support, to support a disruptive launch too. On slide 18, we consider this last point. Any company that has a product or service that is delivered over a network has a powerful strategic interest in seeing Dish deploy a network, and a strategic interest in, in seeing them sell that capacity cheaply. In fact, that from the perspective of anybody who's got a business that, uh, that, that depends on a network, the cheaper the capacity on, uh, on that network is, either for themselves or for end users, um, the more valuable their business is. Um, they have a financial interest in making the investment too. Dish could easily be a, a four-bagger or more from here, and that's kind of what we illustrate on the slide. If you look at the, the value in the, the, in, in the wireless market today and Dish's potential share of that value and sort of, sort of sub, subtract from that um, Dish's market cap and net debt, there's $170 billion of enterprise value upside from this opportunity. And, of course, this assumes that the, the value of the market remains the same. By entering the market, DISH could drive down the, the, the value of the market. But you're looking at a $170 billion cushion. Um, it might cost DISH $10 billion to build a network. It might cost them another $10 billion in operating losses to get to cash flow break even. And so maybe that reduces the cushion to $150 billion. But there's clearly an opportunity for marginal investors to make a lot of money in DISH by supplying that capital. And when you add that to the strategic benefit um, that backers of DISH might have, um, it doesn't seem like it would be all that difficult for DISH to raise capital if, if they can construct the kind of economics that we've described here. Um, so companies that deliver a product or service over the network want to see this network built. They've got the, man, the money to back a network. Um, these companies would include Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook. Um, the, these companies wouldn't even necessarily have to provide the capital to build the network themselves. 
they would just have to commit to purchasing capacity on this network once built. And I think with anchor tenants um, of this ilk, it wouldn't be all that difficult for, for DISH to find capital. Bottom line, if DISH can construct the cost advantage we've described here, we think they're going to be able to get the capital to build the, to build the network. On slide 19, in Germany, O2T D was hammered by the new entrant, while DT and Vodafone were relatively unscathed. This is because O2D had the most price-sensitive sub-base as a price leader previously, um, and so they were the most susceptible to a price-focused new entrant. Sprint and T-Mobile would be the most exposed to a price-focused offering in the U.S. Sprint in particular has the highest subscriber turnover, um, with 13% of their subscribers making a decision to stay or leave in any given quarter. Um, Sprint has lower ARPU than the incumbents, but this really reflects the fact that they have a more price-sensitive customer base. They've attracted customers over the course of the last few years with everything from free iPhones to five lines for $100. Um, and that's what's, what's driven their ARPU to where it is. T-Mobile's reasonably exposed themselves, um, and they're going to inherit Sprint's exposure if they get the deal approved. Flipping to slide 20, disruption ultimately spares nobody. Multiples tend to contract for markets facing new entrants. If multiples contract, all carriers are ultimately impacted, whether they bear the brunt of subscriber losses or not. In Germany, DT didn't lose share to the new entrant, but their ability to price was capped by the presence of a new entrant, reducing pricing power, um, and that drives down the multiple. In the U.S., multiple compression would be exacerbated by relatively high leverage at AT&T and Verizon. If the company saw multiples decline from seven to a more historically appropriate six, uh, and bear in mind multiples have been as low as five for these guys historically, um, Verizon would lose about 20% of its equity value, while, while AT&T would lose nearly 25%. Slide 21, um, Verizon and AT&T have ARPU that's 20% higher than T-Mobile, their primary challenger today. If a new entrant forced another wave of price cuts across the industry as carriers try to preserve share, then Verizon and AT&T have the most to lose. If pricing across the industry is rebased to $45, which is close to where T-Mobile is today, Verizon and AT&T would lose 14 to 21% of wireless revenues and 22 to 39% of their equity value. Um, again, T-Mobile is exposed here um, on this slide more as a function of a higher pricing at Sprint um, than on the legacy T-Mobile base. In Germany, the DT and, and, and VOD were able to maintain pricing because they had a superior network to O2D and to United Internet, who was, who was on the O2D network. DISH may well field a network that's comparable or better to the incumbents, um, ultimately once they get it built, which means they could be far more, um, the incumbents could be far more exposed to price pre pressure um, than was the case in Germany. Um, if not price pressure, um, then they could be far more exposed to, uh, to share loss. Um, on slide 22, the incumbents would have a choice, cut price to keep share or keep price and lose share. If they opt for the latter, um, if the existing carriers lose share in proportion to their existing share, the incumbents with 70% of the market have the most to lose. A loss of 10% share at Verizon and AT&T would drive a 39% reduction in equity value at Verizon and 37% at AT&T.
slide 23. So why would T-Mobile enable a disruptive new entrant? Why not walk away um, from this deal altogether? The company on a standalone basis is in a pretty good good position. They, if they end up going through with this deal, it'll be for, for one of two reasons. First, the concessions that T-Mobile is offering up don't materially change the risk that DISH poses to the market. If DISH is going to be successful, they'll they'll be able to be successful with no help whatsoever from T-Mobile. And if if DISH can't build a network with a cost advantage, then 10 million boost subs and an MVNO and some spectrum isn't going to help them. If DISH is coming anyway, T-Mobile would rather face them with more scale and more spectrum. Number two, the deal gives T-Mobile an even more disruptive cost structure than DISH. T-Mobile would have 300 megahertz of spectrum um, assuming no divestitures, they might end up losing some of that. Um, and nearly 60% of the industry's deployed capacity, um, even with DISH in the mix. If they can fill that network, they would increase their revenue share um, by uh, – they would almost they, – they could theoretically almost double their revenue share, um, and they would have a massive cost advantage to help them get there. Um, T-Mobile would rather have the cost advantage to themselves, of course, but they're better off sharing that cost advantage with DISH than not having it at all. Slide 24, some things that we would have thought would be part of the discussions haven't been mentioned in the press. We don't know whether they are part of the discussions and just haven't made it into the articles or whether they aren't part of the discussions at all, either because DISH isn't raising them or because T-Mobile isn't willing to grant them. So first, if we were DISH, we would require, we would be asking T-Mobile to deploy our spectrum for us while they're deploying their own spectrum. They have to deploy new spectrum on every one of the 85,000 towers they plan to retain. Um, it would be far cheaper to deploy DISH's spectrum while doing this. DISH would no doubt push for all of the savings uh, to significantly lower their cost to deploy a network. If T-Mobile was willing to entertain this, they'd no doubt want to capture some of the savings themselves. But we would have thought this would be one of the items on the table in the, on the, in the discussions. Taking that a step further, DISH would probably want to push for a network sharing deal as well. Um, you heard James say this is a common feature of most of the markets in Western Europe. In, in Western Europe. There's no technical reason why it shouldn't be a feature of this deal. At a minimum, they'd likely want to share passive network elements, the towers, backhaul utilities. They may pu push for sharing the active elements of the network too. Um, T-Mobile could run the entire network with DISH paying them a fixed annual fee. This would drive considerable OPEX and maintenance CAPEX savings. Again, it's an unclear whether T-Mobile would be willing to do this. Um, if they did, did, there'd be a tussle over how the savings get split, um, but there could be value for both sides from a component like this. Third, if DISH intends to be a player in the retail market, a national roaming deal at an attractive rate is far more important than an MVNO deal. As DISH builds out their network, they'll want their subscribers to use the network where it's available and to roam on the T-Mobile network where it isn't. This capability could be achieved through a deep MVNO um, with SIM control, but either way, they want the capability for their customers to, to roam on and off their, their own network um, and for DISH to be able to capture owners' economics on the portion of the network they've built while they're building out the network. Fourth, 
we'd assume that the FCC and the DOJ will want the MVNO to have a limited term so that DISH is forced to deploy their own network. The deal will likely only make it past the antitrust authorities if DISH is required to become a facilities-based competitor in a specific time frame. Um, we would assume that the FCC may be willing to extend build-out requirements for this deal, but only if they get new build-out requirements that ensure DISH builds a legitimate uh, 5G network that real mobile subscribers can ride on, not just things. Finally, the report seemed to assume that DISH will compete in the retail market and if they acquire boost subs, they, they will be a retail player. However, it isn't clear to us, at least, that this is where DISH would focus over time. They may, may well focus on the wholesale market. The most obvious backers of the DISH network build could well be wholesale customers. Cable would undoubtedly want to be a wholesale customer if DISH can construct the network economics that we've, that we've, we've outlined here and pass some of those so, so, some of that cost advantage onto wholesale customers. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this is viewed by the antitrust authorities, whether it's worked into the deal in some way. Um, and with that, I'll turn it over to Blair to talk through the regulatory implications of all of this. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, a few quick things. I think the uh, EU experience is extremely relevant for investors. It is no longer relevant, I think, for either the FCC or the DOJ decision. The FCC has already made their decision. It may be part of the analysis for reasons I'll go to in a second. Uh, and, and the DOJ has clearly kind of gone down a path with this. They're not looking at the EU. But it is still relevant to the states and the courts. So the first question is, would a deal cause the states to walk? Our preliminary answer is no. We noted yesterday the states filed a letter relating to the trial date that includes a sentence, it is very unlikely that any settlement between defendants and the, and the Department of Justice could prevent the anti-competitive injury that the proposed merger will cause. Um, I don't think the EU lessons are sufficient to change that conclusion. We will obviously reevaluate whether that whether the states are bluffing or not once we see what the real dish deal is. So then the question is, how will the EU experience affect the court? I think you have to remember this is going to be a relatively short trial, two to three weeks, meaning the defense has a week to a week and a half. It is before a generalist judge. The defense will have to choose how best to counter claims of harms. And by the way, we analyzed the answers that the defendants have provided um, this weekend. The short version of our piece is the weaknesses in those answers tell us why the companies and the DOJ believe that a fix significantly greater than the FCC fix was necessary to improve the odds of overcoming the state challenge. Now, coming back to how the EU plays into that, the plaintiffs will start the case by demonstrating harm in the product and geographic market. I don't think the plaintiffs will need to point to the EU in their affirmative case. Then the defense will try to prove, in fact, there's no harm. Generally, they do that by enlarging the product market, and they actually did that in the answers whether that will work or not. It's an interesting question. But but here I think they could use parts of the EU experience to suggest that no harm is likely to happen to consumers in light of DISH's entry. And the question really is, in some ways, is about kind of trial theatrics, which is whether the specifics of DISH or the EU are more compelling in arguing that there'd be no harm to competition. And clearly what you've heard is some evidence that the companies could 
use. But there are enough differences between the countries and the specific companies that I wonder whether in a short time frame it makes sense to do that. Further, the states could also point to, as, as James pointed out, it's a tough road for new entrants. There's problematic evidence from Germany. The specifics of the Iliad case may suggest that a new entrant like this is not likely to succeed. I do think the European example is likely to come up in the expert testimony of economists on both sides. Um, and I would also note that the EU example shows the importance of customer service. One of the things that will be interesting is to see if the deal is, comes through, how Ergen proposes to do customer service, the tactic of having a big retail presence, which is what the incumbents do, um, is really likely to undercut Ergen's economic, but without an alternative path to offer customer service, it's not clear based on Europe how we would succeed. I, I think it's also important uh, to think about certain calls by various parties in Europe for continuing government oversight. We expect the states to raise the question of what we might think of as enforcement risk, particularly in light of the FCC being the primary enforcement uh, institution as the, there is history of the FCC imposing and then not enforcing certain merger conditions. Now, I'm confident that the T-Mobile Sprint antitrust litigators, who are, really are tremendous, um, they'll make the right decision. But based on Jonathan's comments about certain specific things uh, in which this is different than the entrance in Europe and in a, in a way that I think is probably more beneficial to the companies. I think it's more likely that the defendants focus on the specific advantages of this rather than the European experience. But again, I think that experience is very important for investors. One last comment. Jonathan raised the question of network sharing. Um, I, I certainly agree with his comments. Let me just say that those are the kinds of efficiencies that antitrust may review because you have competitors sharing certain facilities, but generally it does not create the kind of problems um, in the situations that uh, Jonathan was talking about. In other words, I don't think a network sharing agreement uh, would cause a new concern with the states, but rather it actually provides new evidence of certain network efficiencies that could help uh, the companies win the case against the states. Jonathan, back to you. Uh, with that, we'll open it, we'll open it up for questions. Uh, Blair's got a hard stop in a few minutes, so we should front load any questions, uh, anybody has for Blair. You can also just email questions to Ethan at Ethan, uh, Lacey at NewStreetResearch.com. Operator, can you read instructions for questions? Sure, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star one on a telephone keypad. If you're using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Great, thank you. And while we're waiting for uh, questions to queue up, let's take one from Ethan. Yeah, uh, actually, got quite a few already, but Blair, I'm going to try to focus on you since I do know you got to uh, cut out shortly. Uh, one would just be on dishes, uh, on divestitures, considering dishes' current spectrum position, why might additional T-Mobile Sprint Spectrum supposedly be required to be divested. Thank you. Um, that's really actually a question more for Jonathan. In other words, as a matter of a business model, the question of whether Ergen actually needs more spectrum um, or can benefit from more spectrum is more about the business. I actually, one of the curious things, and we pointed this out in a number of pieces, is Macon Dalwakim, the head of the antitrust division, has made his principal argument in his term is that Structural remedies are good, behavioral conditions are bad. And so this began 
as a, and Delaheem said this, the question is, are there divestitures which would make this deal okay? The, the truth is what makes this deal okay are the behavioral conditions, the MVNO, the network sharing, the roaming agreement. Um, if you didn't have those things, I think there would be significant arguments that uh, it was not viable, and I'm not sure that Ergen would agree to them. Whether the spectrum, however, is merely window dressing to pretend that it's really more about divestitures or it's important for the business, I'll let Jonathan answer that. Yeah, so the, the um, I, I would agree with Blair. Dish's competitiveness as a new entrant isn't materially altered if, they're, if they get more spectrum in addition to the 100 megahertz that they've got today. The analysis that we showed in the deck reflects Dish's cost with the spectrum they have today. Um, it's, it gives them a disruptive cost structure. Of course, they would, they would want more, uh, particularly if they can get their hands on 2.5 gigahertz spectrum, which is the most beautiful band available in the U.S. for 5G um, at least anytime soon. Um, so no doubt DISH is insisting vigorously in their discussions with the FCC and the DOJ that a spectrum requirement is an absolute necessity. Um, I would imagine that all of the other market participants, to the extent that they're commenting on the, on, on the deal in the sort of in, in the late stages, are saying if you let this deal go through, um, you should force these guys to divest Spectrum um, because everybody wants a piece of the 2.5, and taking Spectrum away from T-Mobile makes them less of a threat after the deal is approved. But to Blair's point, um, I don't think it it makes a, a material difference to Dish's competitiveness as a new entrant. Got it. And then, uh, Blair, maybe just sticking with Dish, considering sort of their historical pace uh, of, you know, meeting prior build-out requirements and, you know, what's been the relative difficulty at the FCC of seizing any foul spectrum, is it not reasonable for the parties to ask for a period of time which prevents DISH from any sort of future windfall profits on any additional spectrum harvested through uh, a sale of all or, you know, a part of DISH. Thanks. Do you mean a reasonable time as in a time in which they cannot sell spectrum? They can't turn around and just flip it? Is that what you're Okay. Uh, sure. That would that would be a reasonable condition. I, I Look, I think the question – there, there are many things to be said uh, that kind of take us off the topic of this call about how the states might react to a deal with this. One of them would be to use as evidence the letter from T-Mobile asking the FCC to immediately say they're going to take away the spectrum or indicate to DISH that the uh, narrowband build-out is not sufficient. Um, that letter was uh, – is is going to be read by the states to say, why should we trust this? Um, I think there are a lot of good economic reasons to believe that uh, why DISH didn't enter the market. They would have been a fifth participant. Now they're going to be the fourth. But that's, that's you know, the trial will, in a way, if the trial focuses on the fix, that will be part of it. But whether there are certain conditions, you know, I, I think it would be obviously very problematic for, um, for, for the government if DISH got Spectrum as a discount and turned around and sold it immediately to AT&T and Verizon. That, that is not going to happen, I don't think. Uh, so I do think there will be certain kinds of constraints. Okay, and maybe just one more, you know, sort of segueing to the VZ and T uh, uh, comments that you just made. Uh, Jonathan, and maybe this could be both for Jonathan and Blair, but 
you know, contrary, I think the market consensus, you know, the work that you guys have done and, you know, some of the analysis in the slides it shows a pretty bleak picture for TNVZ on the deal. What do you see as the incumbent's best options in the event the deal goes through? And, you know, what what happens to TNVZ's ability to support their dividend if the industry does reprice to sort of the $45 ARPU that we uh, showed in this piece? And I guess the last component of that would be, you know, how do we think about odds of either VZ or T, you know, maybe coming back and, and you know, making uh, a play for DISH before the T-Mobile deal runs its course? And for you, Blair, I, I would just be curious on your view on the regulatory viability of, you know, DISH and VZ or DISH and T in that case. Thanks. So if I, if I were VZ, the very first thing I would do um, would be to – strike out for dish at almost any price um and i'll leave it to blair to uh to comment on whether how that would be received by by the regulators um it would it would create a really interesting situation for the regulators to weed through assuming that that doesn't happen the biggest threat i think they face is not so much from dish as, as from T-Mobile, however competitive DISH proves to be, I think the thing that everybody should focus on um, is the cost per gigabyte that T-Mobile will have on a fully loaded network if they get this deal done. And, and then think through how you think they're going to use that cost per gigabyte advantage. They're going to have 30% of industry revenue, 60% of industry capacity. Do you really think they're going to sit around with all of that excess capacity and a massive cost advantage if they're able to fill it up um, and just take up prices and be content with the market share they have today? I don't think so at all. I don't think they're going to stop until they've got 40 or 50% of the industry's revenue. And that's really where the the disruption is going to come from. It's uh, for, for AT&T and Verizon more, more so than DISH. I think DISH plays into it, um, but DISH is adding to uh, a, a, an enormous problem that already exists for AT&T and Verizon. Um, and it's a twofold problem. Part one is you're creating Timo with a much lower cost per gigabyte if they're able to fill up their network. Part two is T-Mobile is also going to have a much better network than AT&T and Verizon. They've got um, 2.5 gigahertz that they're going to be able to deploy very quickly with 5G. Um, it'll give them the first real 5G network um, in the U.S. You know, long before Verizon or AT&T can get their hands on the C-band um, and, and try their best to catch up. I think Verizon and AT&T's best response uh, to T-Mobile is to try and replicate the capacity and 5G capabilities that the new T-Mobile will have, um, and that requires one of two things. They either have to pour CapEx into the network to increase network density to make millimeter wave a real spectrum band with 5G as opposed to what it is is on the current network, um, which is a bit of a joke, or they have to go out um, and buy assets that allow them to get there much more quickly. Verizon's looked at Charter in the past. They've sort of sworn off a Charter deal uh, subsequently, um, but we can't see how they, why they wouldn't go back um, and, and look at a deal like that again as, as a response to this. And then, Blair, what are your thoughts on can Verizon buy DISH if DISH is the cure uh, to 4 to 3 in, in this deal? 
Number one, if Verizon were to simply announce it was buying DISH, I don't see any antitrust problem. I mean, clearly the big business of the DBS of AT&T has already demonstrated they could do that. Uh, as to Spectrum, I don't think there'd be a Spectrum screen problem. So the, the answer is, yeah. Uh, uh, another thing, which I'll say slightly facetiously, but slightly not, is AT&T could get a couple of their friends, like the Attorney General of Texas, to join this state litigation. Um, uh, having a big state, big Republican state AG uh, join the lawsuit would certainly help it. Um, the reason, I mean, I'm, I'm being slightly facetious about that, but my, my real point is there are a variety of things they could do that, uh, without their fingerprints on it, uh, diminish the odds of the deal getting through the court challenge. But I, I, you know, that, this of course has, from the very beginning, has been the big question, whether in the long term this deal is good for AT&T and Verizon or it's bad for them. And, you know, Jonathan, your, your views on that are very clear. I don't actually have a good view on that because that's kind of way outside my area of expertise. Uh, I will simply say that if they decide it's bad for them, whether through a Verizon deal or an AT&T deal um, to tie up the dish by essentially trying to um, merge the two DBS providers or in some other mechanism, there are a variety of things they can do. I don't think they do that, but. Uh, is that possible? Yeah, absolutely. And I apologize that I have to uh, jump onto another call at this time. But happy to answer any questions from investors by email or by phone calls, which Ethan can set up. Thank you all very much. Thanks, Thanks. Um, Operator, do we have any questions dialed in? No, sir. I do not see any question on this line, sir. Um, back to you, Ethan. Okay, I've got a, quite a few for, for James, and apologies for keeping you on hold there, James. I was just trying to get all the questions for Blair and before we lost him. But uh, one uh, on DT uh, was just basically, you know, what are our thoughts or what does DT say to the market right now about red lines in the U.S.? Uh, I guess in the context of Germany and France sort of being uh, fixed wireless converged markets, you know, the question is, is that? Isn't that analysis, you know, effectively irrelevant? And then also, you know, any thoughts on how the quality of the MVNO network matters, uh, you know, when you think about something like Iliad uh, and the French experience on Orange uh, versus, say, you know, Hutch in Italy? Thanks. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to take those. Yeah, I'll try to kind of break down those three parts. So firstly, kind of DT and red lines, I mean, that kind of public rhetoric, as you would expect, uh, is to say at this stage, no red lines, all options open. I think clearly, though, within reason, uh, I think one of the interesting nuances that does seem to be put forward by DT at this stage, you know, was the rumor about limiting the potential strategic ownership that a third party might be able to take in DISH. Uh, I think, you know, one of the lessons learned from Germany um, is that Drillish uh, on its own as an MVNO would likely be long-term less of a threat, less of a risk, now they've been taken over by United Internet. So, you know, it does seem that kind of one of the lessons DT feels uh, from Germany uh, is going to be around the scale and financial backing um, that DISH might be able to get in future. I think the cost of network build-out and running a decent spectrum portfolio over time kind of shouldn't be underestimated. And it's also interesting that they're starting with a lower 
rumoured share of capacity uh, than, in, than in Germany. We don't know where their red line is, as we saw with 20% capacity being offered, the, the impact in Germany was, was arguably limited. Uh, so that, that clearly seems to be an area, I think, as well, where they are trying to get a better outcome uh, in terms of deals than we saw in, than we saw in Germany. Um, on fixed wireless um, issues, you know, is that relevant? I think the fixed wireless convergent nature of it, I think certainly is more relevant in France, less relevant in, in Germany. The convergence take up there is low, as is also the case in Italy. Where I think it is hugely relevant, though, goes back to this issue of branding, that if you have an existing fixed brand in the market, uh, you are just a well-known household brand to consumers. Uh, and I think that was a big differential in terms of helping Iliad um, to, to sell their product. Um, and on the issue around kind of MVNO quality, absolutely uh, critical. Um, and I think, you know, lessons learned and mistake made from Iliad is when they launched a year ago in Italy, they also launched with a very aggressive bucket of 50 gigabytes per month. Uh, so they were starting to move into the fixed wireless broadband market uh, with that kind of product. And I think, you know, that was the issue they faced with trying to run a bundle as generous as that uh, in terms of allowance on a network that was below par put undue stress on the wind network and I think ended up becoming a kind of virtuous circle, vicious cycle for, for Iliad with some of the problems they faced. But it's interesting in Germany, United and Drillish both running as well on the slightly weaker network of O2D, um, but haven't run into the same complaints people have seen around network quality, partly because some of the usage bundles there that have been marketed, the main bundles around two to six gigabytes being less stressful on the O2 network um, than, than what Iliad has tried to push in, in Italy. Uh, and then uh, I think, you know, another one, James, and I've gotten this question in probably four or five different forms, but I think the meat of it is everyone's just trying to assess the probability of D DT and Timus walking away from the deal if the remedies, you know, mirror uh, the experiences in Germany to a degree where, you know, maybe DT, DT is concerned or is, is not happy with what the remedies are presented. And I think the way I, like, I get the question often is, would the operators have been better off if the original four to three deals hadn't taken place at all? Or, you know, in other words, were, were the merger synergies in Germany, did they create more value than, you know, what was wiped out um, by the new entrants? Or, or is it too early to say? And I guess, you know, O2D is the, the case that uh, I consistently get asked is, is, would the company have been better off alone, you know, without acquiring E+. Thanks. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, well, easy answer to say in Italy is I think Wind Hutchison, you know, would probably rather be on their own that, uh, that, than Iliad coming in. Um, in Germany, I think it's more kind of finely balanced, but I think the two players are still uh, better off um, as a result. Yes, 
they have lost uh, retail share as a result of the deal. Um, but I think it's also worth bearing in mind where these companies would have been uh, had they remained weaker third and fourth players on their own. Um, because I think you know, then in the race towards 5G, the spectrum auctions that we have subsequently seen since deal, uh, I think they would have struggled further. Network quality, which was already subpar for both of them, could well actually have deteriorated further. And the other thing, although the, they ran into some issues around the kind of network integration initially, they have done a very good job on delivering the operational OPEX synergies from the deal uh, and created value uh, through that. And given the scale of the potential synergies that are available to team a sprint, I would be highly surprised if DT were to to walk away from the transaction. My view is I think they would likely give a bit more in remedies if they had to because of the size of the the operational synergies available. Clearly, you know, be Verizon and T that might be hurt, I think, slightly more disproportionately from giving away those remedies, which they clearly wouldn't be keen on. But, yeah, I think for DT... The scale of the opportunity, the political timing now uh, to try to get this deal done, I, I think I'd, I'd be highly surprised if they were to, to walk away would be my view. Got it. And I know we're past the hour. I've got uh, a couple more here, so maybe I can just try to wrap out the call with a, a few for Jonathan and then one more for James. Jonathan, you mentioned Verizon for Charter earlier. I, I guess, you know, the question, I've gotten a number of questions just around cable in general. What are the implications of a deal for cable? You know, how could they be impacted and, you know, or how do you think they may become uh, a part of the solution? Um, and, you know, specifically people have focused on maybe Charter, as a better partner for DT than DISH, when you look at all the leaks that we've had from the press, whether it was Gasparino or Faber, uh, they often seem to sort of reference uh, cable as being part of the equation. Thanks. Sure. So I, I think the uh, cable had a great opportunity to capture a bunch of value from this deal um, at the at the beginning of the process, but they they've opted out um, for reasons I understand. I wish they hadn't. Um, but I, I think when Comcast put out the statement that they weren't interested in picking up any assets, um, uh, they sort of effectively ruled out cable as being the new entrant um, and the, 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 the parties in the DOJ uh, sort of coalesced around DISH as the new entrant because cable, um, uh, cable w- wasn't willing to play that role. Um, I, th- I think cable could have gotten phenomenal spectrum at a great price, um, a much better MVNO uh, with um, with real SIM control um, out of the deal. But I think that opportunity has largely gone. They, they, they are no doubt in their meetings with the DOJ suggesting that they ought to be given these things, but I, I don't see, given that they're not willing to uh, – sorry – I should say, there are no doubt in their discussions with the DOJ um, uh, insisting that they ought to get a great MDNO, um, but if they're not willing to pick up assets, um, I, don't, I don't see why it'll, it'll end up being part of the settlement. Where cable wins is if DISH 
gets propelled into the market as a new entrant with an incredibly low cost per gigabyte. They, they're going to want to fill that capacity up. And cable is a natural partner for the dish network if it gets built. Um, that's the most obvious beneficiary um, I see from the sort of the first order outcomes of the deal. Um, and then there's always the prospect of this deal triggering from, from Verizon again. I don't want that to be the, the sort of the, the focus of our comments on the deal. I would take Verizon's comments, they're not going to buy cable at face value, and assume that, they, that, that their response is to double down on CapEx, not, not necessarily to buy cable. Our thesis on cable is entirely based on sort of the organic opportunities within the cable business itself. But it's, it sort of went from not being on the table at all, uh, I think, to being, to, to being back within Verizon's consideration set as they think about how to respond to, um, to the deal. That's great. And then last one for you, Jonathan. I, I think we're probably one of the first firms on the street to really, you know, put out some thoughts around dishes, 5G economics, uh, as it relates to their spectrum position in the context of a deal. I have had some pushbacks and one of the questions I was just getting is how do we get to our, you know, per gigabit, uh, cost, uh, analysis of dish, you know, specifically some of, you know, pushback on the idea that dish would have a lower cost per gigabit uh, than, you know, the new Proforma T-Mobile. And then I guess, you know, sort of a follow-up to that would be how should investors think about the value of DISH uh, if they deploy Spectrum uh, in a retailer wholesale model? Thank you. So, Ethan, we've been working feverishly to answer those questions for the last couple of months, and we're, we're getting close, the, but we're not all the way there. We're, we're not all the, way, all the way there yet. But from the work that we've done so far, DISH has a cost advantage over Verizon and the current T-Mobile that stems from two things. First of all, they've got roughly 100 megahertz of spectrum. That's the same as T-Mobile has today before the deal. That's the same as Verizon has more or less. DISH's spectrum, it would be about 50% more productive because they're deploying it all with 5G, whereas a lot of T-Mobile and Verizon spectrum – all of T-Mobile and Verizon Spectrum is consumed by less efficient standards going all the way back to 2G uh, through 4G. They've got, you know, Verizon's got nothing except millimeter wave deployed for 5G today. T-Mobile's got a little bit of 600 megahertz. DISH would have a 100 megahertz, 100% of 100 megahertz deployed with 5G. And so that's the, that gives them more gigabytes running over a fixed cost. If, if the fixed costs for all of these networks were identical, um, DISH would already have a cost advantage. But when you add to the fact that their OPEX and maintenance CAPEX will also be much lower because, again, they're running a single uh, network with state-of-the-art equipment as opposed to Verizon and T-Mobile's networks, which have grown – organically over 20 years um, and have multiple network standards with tons of old equipment in there that needs to be maintained, um, DISH ends up with a, much, with, with, a, with a much lower cash OPEX and, and maintenance CAPEX um, sitting underneath more capacity. And when you put those two things together, they end up with a much lower cost per gigabyte than Verizon or T-Mobile ha would have. This all assumes that the network's fully loaded. So 
on Dish's first cost per gigabyte, the the, the cost will be uh, $4 billion um, for a gigabyte. Um, but once the network is fully loaded, their cost per gigabyte would be would be much cheaper. Um, and if you, if, from what we've seen of disruption in other markets, when when a carrier goes into a market with the intention of being disruption, their behavior is driven by where their cost per gigabyte ends up once they fill the network up, and and that would drive Dish's behavior in in our view as well. Now, T-Mobile. Um, if they get Sprint and keep all of the spectrum, would have a lower cost per gigabyte than Dish. So we're not saying that Proformer T-Mobile, that, that Dish would have a lower cost per gigabyte than Proformer T-Mobile. Um, they, they, they wouldn't at all with 300 megahertz of spectrum and a huge chunk of that being deployed with 5G, T-Mobile would have the lowest cost per gigabyte in the industry. And, and that's why, you know, my key message to owners of AT&T and Verizon is it's the that's and 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 really this is the the, the point that I think is is lost on regulators and deal opponents is that the real impact to pricing uh, comes from the cost advantage that T-Mobile is going to have over AT&T and Verizon and Dish as a new entrant with a cost advantage as well, sort of adds to that issue. Um, but T-Mobile is in an incredible position to drive down industry pricing and take share if they get this deal done. That's awesome. Thank you. And then I know we've gone way over, so James, I'm just going to end it with you. Blair had mentioned enforcement risk and European regulators. How do you think the regulators, you know, view the success or do you think they're in generally, you know, happy with the way that the remedy packages uh, have worked out uh, in the various European markets and how have they done things to, um, you know, stay on top of enforcing things like merger concessions after the deal? Thanks. Yeah, sure. I think, I mean, generally, I would say I think the regulators do feel broadly happy uh, with what has has passed since these deals have come through. Uh, I mean, they are, for a, a reason kind of only beknownst to them, very fixated on price per gigabyte uh, as a metric, and that has uh, clearly fallen um, in all of the markets since deals. Now, that I think it would have fallen anyway uh, because of increased supply uh, within markets uh, and technological advances, but regulators uh, will focus on that. Um, but, all, but predominantly, we think service revenue trends since these deals have, have come to pass, uh, by and large, have not shown signs of significant re-rating. Uh, so as a result, the evidence so far would suggest that uh, consumer pricing has not substantially risen uh, since these deals from a headline perspective either. Um, in terms of policing uh, the deals, yes, the European uh, Commissioner has a independent referee appointed to monitor all of these deals, and in fact, that's a topical issue right now in Germany, um, because under the technicalities of the MBA-MVNO agreement, United Internet is actually disputing the formula by which uh, they have been charged by Telefonica Deutschland last year. Uh, that dispute is currently being heard at the moment. Uh, so, yes, the European Commission is remaining very involved in, you know, monitoring how these deals 
pan out. What hasn't happened yet, but might be a headache for them, actually could be around Iliad in Italy. Um, that, you know, I mean, this Iliad in Italy could have been too aggressive to start with. It's going to be very interesting to see if Iliad there does continue in the market uh, for the foreseeable future. I think there is a good chance they might try to sell out. Uh, I think the only buyer I can foresee within the market who would be allowed to buy them would be FastWeb. Uh, so the European Commission might have an issue on their hands there um, if Iliad decide that they cannot continue to fund uh, this business. They also have calls on their capital uh, in France as well. But generally speaking, I think the, the regulators in Europe have been patting themselves on the back. There's, there's no evidence that investment levels have declined in the sector. Bidding in spectrum continues to be uh, intense um, and consumer prices haven't uh, risen in any of these markets. That's great. Thanks, James. Jonathan, did you want to close the call out? Yeah, I think uh, thank you all very much for joining us. We're all available in our respective geographies. If you have more questions, um, uh, please send us an email or, uh, or, or give us a call. Thank you all very much, and thank you, operator, for managing the call. Thank you so much, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, that will come to this conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.